are listening to the Jersey Guys Podcast, the show that talks about hard rock, heavy metal, AOR, and West Coast music. In-depth conversations and special guests are always on tap, so settle in and turn it up. Now, here are your hosts, Tom and Mark. Hey everybody, this is Mark Ballow from the Jersey Guys Podcast. I'm here with my co-host Tom Coyne, as always, and today we've got special guest uh, Larry L.A. Green from the band Fortune and also Harlan Cage, two two cult favorite AOR bands for sure. Uh, So we're going to talk to him about his whole career and uh, let's get right into it. Welcome, Larry. How are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for asking and Welcome yourself. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for talking to us tonight. I guess let's jump right into the the fortune uh, time of your career. And uh, let's go back to like 1982, which I guess is when you met the Fortune Brothers, right? That is when I met the band. Met the, band. Um, the writing uh, that I did was Roger Scott Craig. He was already in the band. And so I joined the band and um, thought that uh, at that time the songs weren't that great. But when I first sat down with Roger keyboard player we kind of had a great collaboration so it was a forgive and i went ahead and joined now so now when you when you joined up uh you guys for the next couple years until the debut hit in 85 you guys just wrote a bunch of songs and played a bunch of shows we did we played all around we mostly played in the la area santa monica civic auditorium places like that it was a lot of fun we were like a lot of bands at that time and nailing your flyers on the telephone poles by the whiskey oh, okay. offering people pictures of your first band if you come see us please <laughs> you know it was a crazy time in, in la at that that was kind of the beginning of the whole like sunset strip days huh it was yeah wild and nutty so i uh, i got out there it was uh, 1992 was the first time i got to la so i got to kind of i was a little late to this to the party you know yeah well, it was still kind of going on i mean i don't know you know that scene was really heavy and hard and heavy in the middle 80s early 80s oh yeah and yeah. it went through mid 90s you know Definitely. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen it in its heyday, that's for sure. So talk about the first album. Um, It came out in 1985. I mean, it's pretty much considered like an AOR classic. I mean, it's it's kind of a master class in in AOR, right, Tom? Absolutely. Talk a little bit about that album, Uh, you know, the writing process and and even, you know, the dealings with the, the record label. Well, we were fortunate to have quite a bit of time when we played live the songs we wrote, which was a real advantage, more of an advantage than we've had recently. The songs came together. Like I say, Roger and I wrote a couple of songs. The first song we wrote was a song called All the Right Moves, which we put on the Fortune 2 record. It was actually for a film. It was a Tom Cruise film, All the Right Moves. That's the first song we wrote. That's when I realized I could write with Roger. Some of his changes. I come from kind of a streety blues uh, background. Roger's a classically trained Irish piano player. And so the two of us made a good mix. And then with Richard in there, who's real edgy and, uh, you know, he's kind of a hot rod rocker from the days of those hot rod days around L.A. So it was a good combination. It was a good chemistry. And as far as the the label, they, they tossed us around a little bit. MCA had a new subsidiary called Camel. So they put us on camel to see how we would do. There's only three bands on that label. It was uh, Geoffrey, if you remember them. Sure. And uh, Night Rage, you probably remember. 
Definitely. Uh, the, the rest, you know, so the, the three of us were on that label. It was a subsidiary, subsidiary MCA. And they, uh, they kind of dropped the ball right from the beginning almost, right? Yeah, Camel had some serious problems. I mean, the Bruce Bird was the, the owner. They all had some problems, so many problems that MCA dissed themselves, and that's what happened, basically. Mm, and then they went so, under pretty quickly thereafter, right? They did, yeah, they did, and left uh, all three of us, ourselves, you three and Night Ranger, kind of out in the out in the desert <laughs> to speak. <laughs> and that um, was kind of the uh, kind of the end of the band at that point, right? I mean, you didn't really ever was. recover. I mean, yeah, that's right. The band really couldn't recover too too much from that. We tried to, I don't know, we tried to keep it going a little bit. Roger took some gigs. I went into film situations that I had already started even before Fortune. Um, I had met Giorgio Moroder back when the Olympics were happening in 84. So I already done some stuff for him. So this goes before Top Gun. And, and then there, there you go. That's what happened with the band. We couldn't keep it together after the label dropped us. There was no money. <laughs> we actually never knew the band was as popular overseas as it was until recently because we never got any money. We never got paid, so we didn't know how popular it was. So. What was, what was the basis of uh, your your sound? Because you ha always had such a distinctive sound. Even your your vocal uh, phrasings are very distinctive. Who did you guys draw as a reference or influences to record this first album? God, I don't know, man. I mean, sometimes you know you look back and you wonder who who you're like. Um, you know, there's an early foreigner, maybe. Um, more likely, like. You know, Pink Floyd, even Jethro Tull, gotta love that band. So Me too. You know, we're going way back here. <laughs> Me too. So there you go. I mean, a lot of that stuff we draw from, uh, you know, lyrics and things like that, and the way things are structured. But uh, you, know, you try to stay original with it all. So we took it all in, put out what we thought was going to be original, and nobody else would sound like us. It, it really has withstood the, t the test of decades that the band has still got the same distinctive sound from the mid-80s right up to 2022. You could put on the brand new record, which we'll talk about in a little while, and the first record, and the sound is so distinctive. And to this day, I've never heard a band, while your band has been an influence for a lot of bands, I've never heard a band that has really copied the fortune sound like so many bands have been copied. So you, you cut out a niche that really has stood the test of decades. Wow, thanks for the kind words, man. I appreciate that. So, you know, we tried that. You know, we become like a, a musical version of a continuing Marvel comic. <laughs> <laughs> is is the, the chemistry between you and Richard such that after all these years when you got back together, and again, we'll talk about the two more recent records, that when, when you guys write and, and you're in the studio together, that that fortune sound just is what comes out? I think so. We have a lot of fun together, so that's that's the basis of let's get together because it's all, it was always kind of a kick. He's kind of a cool guy to hang out with, and um, that was always part of it. We um we hadn't seen each other for years after the first record. He had asked me to come and sing with him at a at a venue called the Arena uh, somewhere. I don't know somewhere. I'm, see me valley california someplace and i went out there and we did some hendrix stuff and then we played a couple of fortune songs just to you know people liked it a lot everybody kind of remembered it out there there was a little reunion there and that kind of started started us getting back together again we thought well we should play a few gigs and see what happens and of course locally the music we play is not real popular you know you're hearing so much um, i don't know more dance stuff out in la it seems like but uh, Hard rock stuff is still in the bar rooms and still in the radios when somebody's driving a car, that's for sure. So, 
still there. And if you don't mind me asking, how come uh, Roger Craig did not continue on uh, with the band on the last two releases? Because I always felt he was a very integral player and, and, and force in the band, although even even though with, without him in it, the two new records sound very much like the original band. Well, you know, it's not like we didn't want Roger. Um, Roger and I are good friends, and I talked to him beforehand. I asked him to do it. You know, he... He told me that he was retiring from the business because the business of music, he wasn't able to separate from the actual playing of the music and writing of the songs. The business was just, it drove him nuts. He couldn't handle people copying the songs he wrote and working for free and everybody expecting to have music for free. I think he was just trying to drive him nuts. And he said, I'm retired. So I asked him, I, even on this last record, I said, please, let's do, come on, man. You, you know, you're not going to be a part of the new fortune record. Everybody's anticipating it overseas. And he said, you know, no, nah, I'm retired. Wow. And that, and also he came into a bunch of money. So what the heck, man? I mean, I get it. It's a shame because he's got a beautiful keyboard setup. And you know, I might even hit him up to do, they've offered me a Harlan Cage. I might hit him up to see if he wants to do a Harlan Cage record. That would be great. Down, you know? That so, would be you know, great. I thought he would. It'd be a lot of fun. You know, we always try to separate. I always tried to separate those two bands in my mind. I don't know if people did, but I, I think people voice. did. I mean, I, I as as a fan of both, I, I did because it it did have a different sound from Fortune. So it was for me as a fan, it was easy to separate the two out. I mean, it's the same style of music, but definitely um, it, it it wasn't a, a Fortune clone band, at least not to my ears. Right. Well, without Richard. Fortune and Mick as well. Right. The band didn't have didn't have quite that same edge. It had a different different kind of vibe to it. So you know, good. I'm glad it separated itself. So could we talk it's a little hot. bit about how Hall Hall and Cage got together and how that came off the ground and the uh, the transformation from Fortune to Hall and Cage? Well, after Fortune, there's a there's a guy in. Sweden, Magnus Solterbeast, good man. And, yes, um, we know them both very yeah, well. Okay, so Magnus came to me, approached me, and met me somewhere here in Hollywood. He said, "Do you want to put together a, a, a record?" And I said, "Well, I might. Let me see if I'm." I had done a few things with Roger, brought him in on some film and TV stuff that I was working on. So I said, "Well, I'm still in touch with Roger, and I'm, we're still writing songs." So, and he said, "Well, that'd be great." And so basically, we got together, the two of us. And we decided we're not going to do a fortune record. We're going to try to do a separate record. And we originally, it was originally called Big City, which just wasn't, it was too generic sounding. So I came up with the name Harlan Cage and thought, oh, that's kind of poetic. Let's use that. I remember where I read that name, but some beggar man, preacher, thief was was fitting. <laughs> so basically that's how, that's how we started a band. You know, we kind of just wrote the songs and put it out. And that was 1996 when the debut came out, and you guys put out four more, or well, four records in total up to 2002, right? That's right, yeah. And then we did a best of as well, so that's out there. So I found on the second album, um, that's when the sound really for the band started to take off. You got involved with a guitar player named uh, Billy Lifesgang, who I'm very familiar with. He did records. Yeah, Billy Lisa, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he's a tremendous player. He did a record with Glenn Hughes and uh, a, a number of other people. How did you get hooked up with him? No, he was a friend of Rogers. He's a great guy. I mean, he's a Liverpoolian. Uh, you know, I don't know if that's where he's from, but he's got that Cockney stuff down, which, right. is, hmm. which is great. I mean, between all of us, I remember being in the studio and 
Roger having to interpret what Billy was saying and <laughs> me having to interpret what Roger was saying with his right. Irish accent. To the engineer, we're all speaking English and nobody can understand the word we're saying to each other. <laughs> but it was great. He's a great player and uh, I love playing with the guy. He's a lot of fun. Um, Roger met him, I think, when he was with Nina Hagen, which was right after Fortune. Uh, he went on the road with Nina Hagen and that kind of really made sure that the band was sealed in the coffin once he left, so... That's how Roger met Billy. Yeah, I felt on that album, that's really when the, the Holland Cage sound took off. And I remember at the time there was there was a lot of buzz about it with Billy's uh, guitar playing added to the mix of the songwriting and the vocals and, and the keyboards. I, I thought that was when the band really made this. Yeah, you, I think you developed your signature Holland Cage sound on that second album. Uh, that's great to hear. I love that album. That's the Double Medication Tuesday record. That- yes, there's a company in Vegas wants to re-release that on a vinyl, which we might do. And um, we might put another couple of bonus tracks in there if we can dig them up. So. Speaking of bonus tracks, there was a song on there called No Turning Back that was on the Jap- – I have the Japanese press of it, which was a great song. Why was that left off the original record? I don't know. You know, that originally was an instrumental. And I thought, you know, what a cool thing. And Roger said, let's just write some lyrics and put a – put a melody on there and I asked Roger to sing the verses. I wrote the lyrics on the melody. I said, Roger, why don't you sing the verses? I'll just chime in on it. And, we just... and I thought it was a cool jam. It was basically, that's what it was. It was a jam. That's why we left it off. Right. All the albums had Japanese bonus tracks. So the first one had Too Many Heroes, which was another song I liked a lot that was left off the... Uh, you, you made me have to go out and buy all these expensive Japanese... Bo- uh, <laughs> <I think laughs> these really Japanese is. pressings. <laughs> exactly. The completist. I am the, uh, I am the ultimate completist. <laughs> Since you've never met me, I am the ultimate completist. So we, we yeah. move on to Forbidden Colors. What could you tell us about that? Another, another album that I'm a big fan of. You know, we decided to do it a a little more rock. We kind of stepped it up a little bit. Um, We decided to, because with when we were with Fortune, Richard, it was always a harder rocker guy. He gave us an edge that we didn't have in the first two Harlan Cards records. So we decided, well, let's let's kick it up a notch and see if we can put together a a little harder rock record. Which I think we did. I thought it was. I like that record as well. I think it's good. It's there's a few songs in there that you know what everybody else they think of it. So yeah. No, uh-huh. these records went down really well at the time. I, I mean, you know, it, uh, I, I remember it wasn't a great time for hard rock in the United States, but in Europe and Japan, the, these records were very highly thought of, uh, not only by myself, but but many people. I, I think these are the, actually out of the four, that the second and the third were, were my two personal favorites of, of the four. Oh, yeah, we've heard that from the critics. So, you know, <laughs> there, are, there are quite a few out there, I must say. Uh, and most of them have kind words to say so yeah well bad. like tom said you know i mean it was a tough time we're talking you know 1998 99 it's in america it was a really tough time for like melodic rock and aor and stuff like that so yeah i mean but everybody you know tom and i included and, and pl- plenty of our listeners for sure are are big you know aor aficionados and stuff like that so i mean these these are albums that are, are very highly thought of for sure yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate the kind words. You know, we we enjoyed doing him, and um, you know, we didn't we didn't try to change ourselves to try to fit what was going on. We, I don't think we could have even if we tried. You know, it's like a you know, you can a leopard might be able to change his spots, but he's still going to be a leopard no matter what you do. It's going to look the same. So, well, that was very much appreciated by a number of 
actually not a not a great number of bands at that time because there were a lot of bandwagon jumpers onto alternative and grunge and um, I, I think it actually over the course of years it endeared certain bands over the decades that never did break their ranks or you know prostitute their what who they were you've always done that you've never you never put out a grunge record <laughs> No, we try. <laughs> I guess it wouldn't be too honest. I mean, you are who you are. That's the way it's got to work. So anything else is less than honest, and it doesn't really. And it work. comes across in the music, yeah. Yeah, there you go. So if we could talk a little bit about uh, Temple of Tears, which was the last uh, studio record of of Holland Cage. You know, and I like that record a lot. There's some songs in there I really, I really did dig. But it was a strict studio project. We had given up all all hopes of playing live, which we never really did. We were kind of like the Steely Dan of that scene, you know, just Roger and I writing songs. And I think Temple of Tears had some good songs on there. There were, um, it was a kind of a strange time. So we, I remember writing songs kind of around what was going on at the time. New York Morning was one of them. And there were some interesting songs on there, but it wasn't as well received. We had jumped labels. I think uh, MTM went out of business or they just moved on and we were with Atenzi at that time. Once again, it was Magnus put us on Atenzi at that time. Yeah, that and, didn't uh, last too long either, that label, unfortunately. Atenzi, no, that was, uh, that was here today, gone tomorrow. That's right, it was a quick one. So, And then after that fell apart, we just let it go. Raj and I just let it go. And we released a best of pretty much on our own. Put it up on uh, CD Baby and a few places. And it still sells. We still got requests for it. And the best of, of course, was the ones we liked and not necessarily the ones that people who bought the records liked. So, of course, then we could have done the very, very best of the people <laughs> who liked the records and best of. There you go. Could have kept that going for a while, I suppose. There's enough songs. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> so fill in the blanks for us from The Last Hall and Cage to Fortune 2. Got about 17 years there, I guess. Right. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, you know, everybody was kind of doing their own thing. You know, I personally don't really know what Richard and Mick were doing. I think they started a blues band with the original, original bass player that we had on the first Fortune record before Bobby Birch um, came on board. And this was after Bobby died. He was with Elton John for years, Bobby was, and a good friend of ours. And I think he passed away and they formed a blues band. I was, I worked in films and TV. I kept that going ever since Top Gun. So it changed a whole lot. A whole lot of what you do is buyouts now. And I found myself doing a lot of, um, you know, uh, outro songs and barroom songs, songs, people driving in cars, wherever they wanted a rock song. I was happy to do it. The licensing is always been something I like to do. Put music to a film or television is really an exciting thing because you spend so much money on the on the quality of the video that it's pretty cool to see a song on it. So that's basically I don't really know what Roger was doing during that time. Um we kind of lost touch for a few years. And then actually once somebody approached us, I can't remember who approached us to play a live gig in Nottingham. Yeah, well, I was going to say that it was it wasn't set seventeen years because it was around two thousand sixteen. I think you guys did the the Rockingham yeah, show, right. so, there you go. so it was yeah. a little yeah, a little bit before that, before the album came out, the second album actually. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. It was two thousand sixteen was the gig, so we got back together to play, and it was with Roger. This was back in two thousand maybe fourteen or fifteen, something like that. And then we got together, we played a few times, and he you know came into a bunch of money and decided he's going to retire. 
we figured, well, we might as well just go forward with, uh, you know, Richard and I decided, let's just go forward and have some fun. Let's play some gigs. Why not? We'll have some fun with it. And uh, we went over there. And like I said, we had no idea how popular the band was. People were singing every lyric. That must have been a great, great reaction. I forgot, yeah. yeah, as I say, it was great. If I forgot the lyrics, I could just watch people <laughs> mild back. <to> <laughs> well, that's, that's, I've heard that we've, had some guests on here on the show and we've heard that from so many people reading interviews over the years that the the Firefest shows which eventually turned into Rockingham for the last few years uh those the people say when the bands get over there and they never realized you know how much that people you know enjoyed and, and appreciated their music and they just thought it was oh this is you know kind of a nostalgia thing or whatever but they they saw the fans there and they they they're just blown away that's right yeah exactly it's cool. It was a great time. Now you guys went back again the next year to play again too. Yeah, they invited us back, which we were told wasn't a normal thing. So we went back the next year and um, opened up for uh, Vince Neil, and that was a kick. See him, you know, it was a lot of fun. We did two years in a row. Now at Rockingham, yeah. and that's when we released an EP. We decided, well, let's throw some, let's throw four songs on a CD, see if we can make a few extra pounds. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> trying to get out of London, you know. So. Yeah. Um, and then that's when Frontiers approached us. So. Well, I was going to say that, that because the, the four-song EP are four songs that were on uh, two, right? Fortune 2. That's right. That's exactly right. So how did that all come about? There was you know, a couple years uh, between playing the Rockingham shows and then to you guys putting Fortune 2 out in 2019 on Frontiers. How did that all come about? It was just Frontiers got a hold of one of you guys and said, hey, you want to do something? One of the guys that uh, was the head of Rockingham festival um approached frontiers and said hey you should see these guys we had them two years in a row you should listen to what they're doing they put out an ep at the last rockingham the second one we did and we sold out on it and uh basically when they approached us we told them we had put out a cd where if we were going to do another record we'd use those four songs and they said that's okay they weren't crazy about us doing it so we cut it off we I think i have a closet full of those eps somewhere hanging out somewhere i don't know where but we agreed not to sell them and, and they brought us on the label and don't really know what they i don't know what they were expecting to get from us but uh, i think we surprised them that we were still able to hit the notes what can i say <laughs> oh yeah no you i know? mean and tom mentioned before i mean these last two albums are they're just as good as as the debut from 1985 you know and the qualities oh, well, there you know I, I i love the songs uh talk a little bit about the song freedom road because i love that song
Funeral came about. It was a riff that Richard had had. He was been he'd been jamming it with Mick and uh, whatever bass player he was before I even. And actually, when he played it for me, and I said, "Let's do something. Let's you know, give it to me." I put the melody and the lyric to it, and first played it on acoustic guitar, which sounded really funny. But then he took over. And, uh, he rocked out, and uh, yeah, that's a fun song to do. It was fun to do live because people really get one of those driving in your car songs, isn't it? So oh, definitely. Yeah, we enjoy doing that, you know. And it's all about the songs. That's really the basis of it, you know. Yeah. A lot of the songs on that Fortune Two record we had written years before, and that's why Roger is on that record in maybe most of the songs because I had written those with him, and they just weren't part of the Fortune record, and we released it um, just like that. And we had heard a lot of those songs, songs like What a Fool I've Been, which I liked, I liked on that record. I thought it was really good. Yeah, I had noticed yeah. when I was looking at the back of the CD, when I when, he wrote a lot of, uh, co-wrote a lot of the songs. Right. And those were written before uh, he retired. <laughs> right. I use that word. It's so funny to hear it because I don't, I, I don't know how a musician retires. What do you do? Right. Yeah. You think it's always in your blood, right? You just always have to keep doing That's it. That's right. Yeah. Life. What are you going to do? What about the song Living in a Dream World? What could you tell us about that? Well, that's an early jam song. We used to play that at what, what it was at a place called the Central on Sunset Boulevard. It, it later became the Viper Room. And it, which is famous for you know River Phoenix dying out front. Oh yeah, of all things to be famous for. But mm-hmm. we played that song many times, and that was an originally, that was a recording somebody did of that song live. I don't think we touched it. It's live. It's, it's a Japanese bonus track. Cool. Yeah, which again yeah. you made me buy a Japanese CD, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Japanese bonus yeah. track, and I love the song. Another song that I was like, why did they leave it off? But now I understand where the, the genesis of the song. Well, sure. That had a great keyboard solo. It sure it. did. It re- yeah, really, really, really a, 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 a great yeah. song. That, that, yeah. that The whole album is so good. And I, I love the cover of it, too, because it, it just kind of brought back the, the, the whole feel of the first album, but kind of like with a more modern twist with the glove hand. And it was really a, a great throwback album. I, I was thrilled to get it. And it didn't disappoint me uh, one iota. I absolutely loved it. No, thanks. Yeah, we, we purposefully did an album, a cover that we knew would tie into the first one mm-hmm. so people would remember us and think, oh, here we go. It's mm-hmm. the same band. Yeah, yeah it was only 34 years band. later, right? Sure, yeah. <laughs> My son did that painting. That was really cool. Oh, really? It no, it's, it's great. Yeah, I, I absolutely – you know, I think it, it added so much to the, the band coming back. I, I know myself, when I saw it, it, it made me, like, excited because I, I felt like, oh, wow, this is – you know what you're going to get when you see a cover like this. You don't have to say, like, what do they sound like now or is it still – Sure. You know, it, you kind of get the feeling that it's, it's going to be part two of that first legendary album. Yeah. So let's uh, two years uh, or two, two, well, three years on just earlier this year, uh, the third Fortune album comes out, uh, Level Ground. And let's talk about that. How did that all come about? Because you did mention that the the second album had a lot of older songs that were written with you and Roger and laying around. Uh, were all the, the songs from the new album completely brand brand new? No, that's a ground up effort right from the beginning. We decided let's just, if we're going to release another record, let's wipe the slate and see if we can just pull off a great rock record. And um, we started by, it was, it was a weird time to start. We had started at like right 
kind of during the pandemic, everything shut down around, I don't know, well, you're here in the States, so what was it, like March or something? Yeah, like March of 2020. March yeah. of 2020. Right, and so we couldn't even get together in rehearsal studios. I think you could have like one, two people in a rehearsal studio. So it was kind of a lot of going back and forth, like, hey, I like that riff, let's do this, let's do this and this. But I mean, it kind of worked out, you know, I had some ideas on it, Richard had some ideas, so the two of us pretty much wrote the whole record together and then got together once we could get together, got together, played down the songs a few times, wound up going into the studio with it. So, you know, we've never played the songs live, which is a disadvantage when you're doing rock, but it was fun to do. Even in the studio, we had a good time, you know? Yeah. Was it one of those things where you mentioned like during the pandemic, you couldn't really get together? Was those things where you kind of digitally sent each other ideas and tracks and stuff like that? Yeah, more. Yes, exactly. That's what we were doing. Emailing back and forth, MP3s and singing into my phone or singing, you know, get a little set up. You know, it's one of those things, you know. We both have little home studios. You can't do production in there. You certainly can't do live drums, which is always part of the, that's part of the contract you sign with Frontiers. You won't use a drum machine. Oh, okay. <laughs> or we'll break your legs or whatever they do over there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they, they're into they, they're into putting out power metal albums now, so there's no place for drum machines. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, you can't. You're not allowed to do that. It's got, got it in capitals. You got, you got to have the fortune with the double bass. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely, no drum machine. The next oh, album. That's what we want to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about a couple of the songs on that album. I mentioned before, I think we started recording, that uh, "Orphaned in the Storm" was a real favorite of mine. Do you have anything story-wise about that song? You know, it was one of those songs that kind of progressed over the year, over a year. Yeah. Orphaned in the Storm is like being abandoned. The thought of being abandoned. Um, uh, some of the lyrics on that, I, I enjoyed writing. I, I liked the, the opening of it. Um, the um, sound of rain on a rooftop, you know, sounding mm-hmm. like a thousand broken rosaries, and things like that. I thought, wow, that's really cool and colorful and I think people would dig it. But basically, it was a song about being abandoned, which is a it was a good time to feel abandoned in the middle of that pandemic. Cause even that's true. Even if you couldn't stand being in the house, you go outside and it's pouring rain and like whatever you want. Right? Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things. I enjoyed the Richard put a great uh, rock feel to that, to that song. And I, I enjoyed writing that with him on that. All of them, you know, a lot of these, some of the really hard rock stuff, you know, Richard comes through on, he did on the first record too. So, you know, he's more of a hard rocker than Roger, so basically, that's why the album is a lot harder rock, I think, than probably what we would have done if Roger was in the band as well. It's got a little bit it. of an edge to it, um, even more so, I think, than the last record, the, the new one. It does, yeah. It does, sure. 
If, yeah. if you could talk to us a little bit about my one of my two favorite songs on the album, I Will Hold You Up. Caught at being human And all of that You try to shut the world out The world comes wrong back I kill the You know, that's it's wild. That song is a uh, uh, it's it's I felt that was speaking to me. Some songs you spend a while writing and rewriting and then some songs just kind of come to you and that just kind of came to me. And I remember I think my wife said that to me, you know, when, in, a, in a moment of despair. I don't worry, I'll hold you up. And I thought, well, that's a great title. And, uh, you know, I didn't tell her, oh, I'm going to use it. I, I didn't want to share the publishing. Forget that. But no, I'm kidding. It was a cool song to do. And um, that's pretty much it. It was a song that came really quickly. And so I put it down, whatever came to me. And I had had an idea about doing a song like that, that the chorus speeds up slightly, if you notice. I don't know if you do or not, but uh, the chorus, we hit the, we hit the verses are a little slower. And the chorus speeds up slightly. And because it was that kind of, I don't know, eclectic mix, tempos and things like that, in that song I had asked Steve if he would play on it. And he said, oh, absolutely. So... Talk a little bit about that. Steve, Steve Picaro from Toto fame, of course, uh, played on that that track. Uh, how did that all come about? I've known Steve for years. Actually, um, his oldest daughter is my niece. Oh, wow. So uh, we've written songs. I wrote a song with him on the first Harlan Cage record called uh, Let It Rain. Um, and he and I have worked together many times and a few things, um, you know, mostly you know, some TV stuff, film stuff. But uh, he's a great player. And to get him to play on that, and he, you know, basically he wouldn't even take any money for it. Offer him money on the session, he wouldn't take it. He said, "No, no, no." We've we've returned favors before. I've sing a few demos for him, and he play a few things for me. So, you know, he oh, played on a song he did for Josh Groban, actually. So, oh yeah, wow, it's great. He's such a great player, and he's got great ideas. And he just just sparkled that song. He really really made it sparkle. So I'm really happy to have him on the record. He really is a great player. I I was just recently on YouTube looking at some old, old Toto live shows, one of which was from Japan in, in 79. And his playing it was just, it floored me. I, I, I kind of forgot how good he was, you know, in that band. Because he was kind of like not one of the, the premier guys in the band in terms of like name but when i watched them i, I was just blown away at how uh, what a great player he was and he hears such great changes yes and his inversions and things like that absolutely you know, 
he's a very schooled guy, man. He knows theory really well, way better than I do. So it's a pleasure to work with, I tell you that. So, so let's, you touched on a little bit earlier. Let's talk about your, I guess you want to call it your day job or so, so to speak, your, your, your movie and your, your sound work, your <laughs> okay. film stuff. Um, how, how is that something you said you've been doing that for a really long time? How did you get involved in that? Well, I mean, after I did Top Gun, I, um, we did a couple, we did another record on, uh, I was sang on the soundtrack to a film called Over the Top, which... Oh, Sylvester Stallone, yes. Sylvester Stallone. I call it the armpit movie, but it was the arm wrestling movie, <laughs> arm wrestling, you know? Yes. <laughs> we all thought we were going to make a, make a ton of money on that. I did because it had Ben Halen on there. Well, it had, you know, it had some great people on there. And basically the the... The movie was not that great in my mind. I could kind of hear the toilet flushing before I walked out the door. So you know, it was one of those things. But a lot, of, it, it, honestly, it's become like a cult thing, especially yes, in Japan. It has. People yeah. play that 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 movie all the time. So after that, the next film I did, I kept going in film. I did. I did a song on a film called Mystic Pizza, which was um, Julia Roberts' first, and that was the first film that I did away from Giorgio and uh it was also the first they were starting to get into instead of royalties you know you were starting to get buyouts going on and uh even if you were an after or union person you had to work non-union you had to work under the table or everybody had, there's too many people behind you willing to do it so that's how the music and film industry is today it's trickled down to the point where it's still good work if you can get it but they, everything's pretty much a buyout. You don't do a lot of residual stuff mm. these days unless it's, a, it's a, a featured song. Some girl running slow motion on a beach and your song is playing. You'll get a little more money. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that's about it. But other than that, it's you know I have an agent that uh, licenses films and a lot of the songs I do um, outro songs. And I've done some transition and bumper songs and things like that. But enough that it keeps it going. So, And, uh, you know, I don't have to do... I don't have to go into refrigeration or air conditioning repair or something like that. <laughs> Do you, are you are you actively still writing? I mean, besides just the music for or from films and stuff, are you you actually writing songs like stuff that would maybe be used for Fortune or? Oh, I don't think so. Most of the stuff I do for any any kind of media is not really a, it doesn't really translate down to Fortune. I don't think. I mean, there might be ideas that I've used. It seems like I've pulled ideas from some of the stuff i've done of course and lyrics and things like that as well most of what you do is like you know it's just out there and uh, it, it, it's just written to whatever the scene requires things like that right and, right. and that's okay I, I get to i get i get to do it and i'm fortunate to be able to do that blessed so now the as am i right to say was the the frontiers contract that you guys had with fortune that was a two album deal is that right it was, yeah. Is there has there been any talk from Frontier side or or from you guys having interest in doing uh, another Fortune record? You know, we haven't really talked about it. I I don't know. Um, I would love to do another record with Roger if he's into doing it. I don't really think he would be. Like I say, the folks from Vegas, Twentieth Century Music, I think it is, had wanted to re-release some double medication on on vinyl, and that. To him, that made sense because you can't really copy it as easily as you can a digital format. So maybe maybe he thought he was going to make a little more money on it or something. I don't really know. As well, far as Frontiers, they haven't talked to us about doing another record. We actually wanted to do some more shows, but a lot of stuff got booked and canceled. Booked and canceled. So I don't know what's going on with that. Oh, okay. I can't keep up with what's happening. <laughs> with the, 
I mean, things are starting to get a little bit better, but it seems like, you know, it's still not really back to full, full force yet. That's right. Yeah. And as far as festivals go, that's people got to be more careful, I suppose. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I get all that, but it's a drag for, especially for younger musicians coming up that are depending on live shows to make some money. Cause yeah, that, given that, away that, your, that's a, de- that's a death blow to these young bands. I, I feel awful really for is. them too. Uh, here's so many there's so many good bands here too and i just don't understand how they you know they're living in closets and whatever yeah, so i know girlfriends are supporting them just like the old days yep <laughs> yep it's true yeah. <laughs> yeah so um anything else tom that you wanted to talk about the only thing i did want to talk about was the dvd release which also i'm a big fan of were you, were you guys happy with that the uh the way it went down and i was just watching it the other night i, I thought the band sounded great just curious what your thoughts are, were on that it was okay you know let me i'll just you know without making any excuses at all it was a tough commute to mm-hmm. that gig oh yeah and then we didn't uh, you know we played the next day afterwards so basically there was not a lot of movement for a dvd i actually didn't want to do the dvd i told him let's don't do this guys you know give us a day off before the gig and get, get through the jet lag and all and maybe Absolutely. we could do it but we didn't have a chance to do that and they insisted on doing the dvd so basically i when i watch and i see myself you know hitting some high notes and holding on to the mic stand <laughs> <laughs> You know what I'm saying? It's kind of getting the yeah. Getting no, that, it's a tough flight. I've been there. It's, it's yeah. a definitely it's an ass kicking flight. And and you know if you do that flight, I guess when you're 20, 25, you know you bounce. But I know I, I was there last time. I was around 40 ish, and yeah, you need a day or two to get to to, to feel like a human being again. <laughs> well, to film it, you know. Other yeah. than that, yeah, other than that, would have been fine. But yeah, I think it came out okay. Um. It was a difficult gig to hear yourself because the ceilings were so tall. It's such a cavernous room that I remember would even a sound check, Mick would hit a snare drum that would come back to you like three, four times. Oh, oh really? Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then they, you know, of course they always say, well, when the people are here, it won't be a, uh, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> right. The ceiling was too tall. Unless there were people on the ceiling, you, yeah. you were going to hear that. And it was, it was difficult to hear, but I think the DVD came out. Okay. I was surprised actually how good it came out. Yeah, know, no, so it's really good. It sounded in tune. And it was nice to have something, you know, with the band memorialized on a, on a pro shot show like that. Yeah, and they did a good job filming it. And everything that Frontiers did with that was good. The cover, all that was fine. It was just the band being able to pull it off after the long travel day and to make it look exciting. I don't know how exciting the DVD has been a long time since I saw it, to be honest, probably a year. No, it's real good. Saw yeah. it, no, okay, thanks, man. I appreciate the kind words, Yeah, honestly. Hey, I think that's uh, that's everything, Larry. Uh, we we appreciate this talk tonight for sure. Um, everybody, uh, Larry L.A. Green from Fortune and Harlan Cage, uh, thanks for uh, spending some time with us tonight. Hey, thank you guys. Appreciate all the kind words, and we'll rock on, man. We'll see what happens next time, huh? Excellent. Well, hopefully, uh, hopefully there will be uh, some new Fortune music in uh, in the future. Well, maybe Harlan Cage music too, <laughs> if you could get uh, you Roger to get motivated. To. There you go. <laughs> Hey, appreciate it. Sounds good. We'll talk to you you soon. All right, bye-bye. Take care. So, hey, this is uh, Mark Ballow from the Jersey Guys podcast. We just talked with uh, Larry L.A. Green from Fortune and Harlan Cage. Uh, How do you think that went, Tom? Uh, It was very good. It was very enlightening. Uh, As a guy I've always wanted to talk to because I've been a big fan for... 37 years <laughs> <laughs> yeah and um we had talked about this a little bit on uh, over the last couple of weeks and i think he's just a great guest to get on because in the aor circles he's still very relevant the band is still relevant and the um the legacy of fortune and Holland cage i think has stood up over the test of time 
And uh, the brand new record, Level Ground, for anybody that doesn't have it, if you love the first and second fortune, you're going to love this every much as those two. And um, yeah, it was, a, it was a terrific interview, a lovely, lovely guy. Yeah. No, it was good. Like you, like you said, I mean, Level Ground just came out two months ago. I mean, here's a band that's got a legacy from, from 1985 with their debut album. And here they are, you know, just two months ago, they released their, their third album in what, 36 years. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, and the quality is there that the, the last two albums that these guys put out are just as good as that classic debut, uh, from 1985. Um, yeah, it's great stuff. And, uh, I was happy to talk with them. So yeah, I think this went really well. Anyway, we'll uh, we'll be back at you guys with a, a new episode soon. We hope you enjoyed this one, and uh, talk to you later.